All scripture is breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so we pray that by the power of your spirit this morning, our Father, you would do your work in us through your word. Teach us, reprove us, correct us, and train us, we pray, that we might live as a people of righteousness and be equipped to live for you in your world. Make us the church that you want us to be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read then 2 Timothy chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And so I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come to me before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Uh, you want to keep that open in front of you, follow along as we work through it together. There's also an outline, as there usually is, on the back of the notice sheet of where we're going and our points and things like that. 
Now, uh, I don't remember all of the sermons that I heard 25 years ago, but um, I heard one talk on this passage that has stuck in my mind. I think it was 2000, and I was at a conference center just outside Northampton. Speaker was an Australian. Uh, We didn't understand much of what he was saying, but this bit I remember. He started by asking a question. He said simply, do you believe? Do you believe? He went on, do you believe in God? Do you believe he knows all and sees all? Do you believe that at the end of the day, no one else's opinion about you matters, not even your own, because it's only God who will hold you to account for what you've done with the time and the talents that he's entrusted to you? Do you believe that of those to whom much has been given, much will be demanded? And do you believe in Christ Jesus, his son, Do you believe he appeared the first time to reveal the majesty of God's grace to the world? Do you believe he died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God? Do you believe that one day all the peoples of the world will be gathered before him and he'll divide us into the sheep who have known and loved and served him and the goats who haven't and he'll send the goats away to everlasting punishment? and the sheep to everlasting life. And do you believe in God's kingdom? Do you believe that when Jesus comes again, his kingdom will fill the whole earth? Do you believe that all of the people of God will be brought safely together into a perfect new creation in which there's no more sickness, no more sadness, no more selfishness, no more death. Do you believe that if we endure as disciples in this life, we will reign with Jesus in the next? Do you believe? Uh, That was the introduction to his talk. And then he said very simply, if you believe, then preach the word. It was memorable, Uh, it was formative for many who were there, but all he was doing really was reflecting on the logic of verses one and two. Let me read them again, I charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and encourage with complete patience and teaching. Uh, You'll see we've got two points this morning, and we start with that solemn charge to preach the word. It's a charge to Timothy directly and to other church leaders, uh, other gospel workers in the first instance, but we've seen all the way through to Timothy, haven't we, that it's a, a charge that we all need to understand so that our churches can prioritize and multiply and pray for this kind of ministry. And because in a derivative sort of way, it's a charge that we all obey as God sends us out to make disciples of the the nations. And if you were here before Christmas as we started looking at 2 Timothy, I think it won't surprise us, this charge. It's really just a a summary, the the climax point of the whole letter. Uh, We've been seeing that Paul knows his friend Timothy was at a crossroads. There's um, persecution from the outside world. There's opposition within the church. And Timothy is tempted to 
to duck out of frontline, authentic gospel ministry and to settle for an easier life instead. And the letter is Paul's appeal to Timothy to stay in the fight, to guard the good deposit by living it out faithfully himself, by training the next generation of gospel workers who will then be able to pass it on to others. And now this charge is the climax of his appeal. And we've mentioned the the paradox before. Normally, if we want to guard something like a precious gem, you keep it safe by putting it away in a safe and locking the door. But the way that we guard Jesus' glorious gospel of life is not by locking it away in a safe in a seminary, but by preaching it far and wide. And you'll see in verse 1 and 2, Paul specifies both the activity and the content. You've got to preach and declare authoritatively, proclaim, announce. And you've got to preach the word, the truth of Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's been so easy for Timothy to be so fearful of or so intimidated by the negative response he was beginning to get from his congregation that he would want to to trim his sails and hold back from saying things that his congregation didn't want to hear and only emphasize the bits that he thought would make him popular. It would be so easy for him to be so discouraged by an apparent lack of fruit in his preaching that he gives up on plan A and produces a different type of ministry to try and draw in the crowds. And Paul says, just preach the word. Because as we saw last week, faithful gospel ministry is always word ministry. And I think it's true that you won't find anywhere else in the New Testament quite such a a serious and solemn charge as this. The way that Paul piles up the the incentives in verse 1 is unique and it highlights the urgency of the command in verse 2. And then the rest of the verse gives a bit more detail. Timothy, you've got to be ready in season and out of season. I I think that's not just when you feel like it and when you don't, but whether the congregation or the the town in which you live are listening or whether they're not. And that's because when it's in season and things are going well, there is so many other things to do, so many people to see, you can lose this priority. And when it's out of season, you can be so distracted by complaints and so personally discouraged and so desperate for fruit that your focus goes and so Paul says hold your nerve and preach the word put the the word to work for the purpose for which it was given we saw up in verse 16 of chapter 3 that God's word is profitable for all of those things teaching reproof correction training in righteousness And now Timothy's to reprove, to rebuke, to encourage. That's because in any congregation, there'll be people whose understanding of God's truth is a little bit wonky in places. We're all like that. And there'll be people whose living is a little bit compromised in one way or another. And so when it's needed, the leaders of the church correct, they rebuke, they encourage. And everybody together is to submit all of their belief and all of their behavior to the clear teaching of God's word. That's a a long work, it's a slow work. Um, None of us are as quick to learn as we should be. 
Um, certainly none of us are as quick to change as we would like to be. We're all like that. And so end of verse 2, Timothy, you've got to carry out this um, teaching ministry with complete patience, trusting God to do his work in his time in different people's lives. At the context, <coughs> excuse me, for the, the charges spelled out in verses 3 and 4, we've seen it before in the letter, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. It's funny because the, the, the verbs are in the future, but the letter has taught us that the future is already here. People in Ephesus were already departing from the truth, already listening to false teachers. They were far more popular than Paul and Timothy. And the accumulate word in verse 3 is interesting. Paul says they, they heap up teachers who will say what they want to hear. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this. When people are, are departing from what's here called the, the sound faith, from the, the clear teaching of the apostles in the Bible, when they're departing from that, they never come to you and say, hey, I've decided to wander off into myths. They come to you and said, I've, I've got the courage to ask some important questions. And then they surround themselves with new teachers and friends who will affirm them on their journey away from the truth. Because in that way, they don't have to think of themselves as people who are deserting or departing from the truth. They can picture themselves as people who are making progress instead. And Paul is urging Timothy not to allow his own ministry to be reshaped by people who are turning from the truth. And so verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded, keep a clear head, endure suffering, it's going to come, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Um, the verse deserves a sermon on its own, to be honest. But that last command, you've, you've started well, Timothy, but the race isn't over, so fulfill, accomplish fully the work that God has given you. Why? On to verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. A, a, a drink offering was a, a sacrifice that was offered to God in the Old Testament. It was literally poured out in the holy place. And Paul says, that's what's happening to my life right now. I'm, I'm about to die. I'm gonna depart and go and meet my maker. In other words, I've done my bit. I've, uh, he says, fought the good fight. We met the, the good soldier in chapter 2, the one whose only concern was to please their master in heaven. And Paul says, I've, I've fought the fight. Uh, we met the athlete in chapter 2 who only wins the prize if they compete according to the rule. And Paul says, I've run the race. I've done all of God's work that he's given to me in the way that he told me to do it. I've reached the finishing line. I have kept the faith. 
says, though Paul had only ever had one thing on his bucket list, all he ever wanted to do was to preach the word, and now he can say, I've done it, I've endured. And so he shifts in his head from looking back with contentment to looking forward with confidence. As he says these amazing words, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. I don't know if you've ever thought much about what it will be like when you meet Jesus. We'll all be before him one day. It's obvious that Paul's mind turned there often. Maybe as he got older and came closer to the end, his mind turned there even more, we don't know. But I love his confidence because he knew that Jesus would greet him on that day. With, uh, by saying something like, welcome, my good and faithful servant. I've got something for you. In fact, I've been keeping it safe for years. And then he would hand to him a crown of righteousness and say, please come and reign with me in my heavenly kingdom. And the most staggering bit about it is in verse 8. Do you spot that there? It's worth looking down and just seeing it for yourself so that you know I'm not just saying it. It's not only the apostle who receives the crown, but anyone and everyone who has loved his appearing. Anyone who loves the fact that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Anyone who loves the fact that he came to give his life as a ransom for many, so that we could be forgiven for all of our sins and failures. Anyone who loves that he rose from the dead and ascended to heaven and reigns now at the right hand of the Father. Anyone who's loved his appearing will receive that crown, a crown of righteousness. I'm just going to stop on that word righteousness for a second. Do you see in verse 8, Jesus himself is described as righteous, perfect, and then elsewhere, the Bible tells us that um, at the very moment that we put our trust in him, he makes us righteous. Whenever you see that word justified, it's the, the same word. He makes us righteous by faith, gives us all of his perfection at the very first moment we put our trust in Christ. And then back in chapter 2, verse 22, we were told, or Timothy was told, that he was supposed to pursue righteousness as being like the hallmark, the direction of his life. He was to, to try and live out every day in his own experience the status that he had been given by Jesus. And what Paul's looking forward to here is that on the day when he meets Jesus, his experience at last will match the uh, his new status perfectly. And Jesus will give him a, a crown of the very thing that he's been pursuing. The righteous one who makes us righteous and one day will give us a crown of righteousness. And it is such an incredible hope to look forward to. Can you imagine what it would be like on that day knowing that you will never again stumble into sin? or say the wrong thing, or have a thought that dishonors him. You'll never again have to confess your sin, 
You'll never have to, to pick yourself up and think, I've got to try even harder now in the power of the Spirit to do better tomorrow. Because you'll only ever be righteous all of the time in everything that you say, think, and do. That's the future that is in front of us. It's the hope that had been driving Paul all through his ministry, and now he knows his wait is nearly over. And so he says to Timothy, preach the word, because that's what's in front. I'm going to apply that charge in a few moments as a way of rounding off this whole series in 2 Timothy. But um, we just need to think about verses 9 to 22 for a second. First, we, I, I read from verse 16 of chapter 3 that all Scripture is God-breathed. That's as true of verses 9 to 22 as it is of verses 1 to 8 in chapter 4. Even if the very best headings that our Bible translators could come up with were personal instructions and final greeting. They are God's Word. And as we look at them now, taken together, they give us our second point, a strategic team of undying gospel ambition. So the chunk, um, verse 9, did you spot this? And 21 may have jumped out. Uh, that Verse 9 and 21 bracket this little chunk. Do your best to come to me soon, and do your best to come to me before winter. And in between, a number of slightly random requests. Verse 13, when you come bring the cloak, um, bring the books, bring the parchments. You could be forgiven for thinking that Paul's feeling a bit cold and bored in prison and he wants something warm to wear and something interesting to do. And so he says, well, bring me my fleece and my Kindle and uh, just my iPad, whatever, and I'll be, able, I'll be happy. Um, that would be to do him a disservice. He's not thinking about himself at all. Actually, all through his life, as we've seen, all he's ever wanted to do was to train and support people like Timothy and to encourage the spread of the gospel and to strengthen the churches. And now, even about to die, that same passion is driving him. He mentions 15 people by name. Uh, I'm bracketing them together into the good guys and the bad guys with a lesson from each group. Demas in verse 10 is one of the most chilling characters in the whole Bible. Uh, obviously a close friend of Paul. Elsewhere, he's mentioned alongside Luke as one of Paul's most trusted co-workers. And that must have made it all the more painful that, as it says there, he had deserted Paul and gone to Thessalonica because he loved this world. Um, love's been a theme in the letter. In chapter 3, the false teachers loved themselves and pleasure and money more than they loved God. Up in verse 8, the crown of righteousness was for those who have loved the appearing of Jesus. And Demas had fallen in love with this present world, which is not to say that he liked sunsets and beaches and sunrises, but is to say that the, the, the direction, the center of his heart was not on God, but on the things of this world, a world living in ignorance and opposition to God himself. I don't know if this is more alarming or not. Some commentators suggest that he may not have abandoned Christ altogether. I'm not sure about that. At the very least, he decided that partnering with Paul was a little bit uncomfortable. And so he deserted him and suddenly it seems felt cool to go and serve God somewhere nicer. It could be, I don't know, maybe there were better schools for his kids in Thessalonica. 
Maybe the manse had an extra bedroom, I don't know. Crescens and Titus had gone as well. We're not told if they deserted as well, but still their departure had increased Paul's isolation. No ambiguity, verse 14, about Alexander the coppersmith. Paul says he did me great harm. Uh, In 1 Timothy, uh, we're told Alexander rejected the faith personally. Apparently that's not enough. Now he's personally attacking Paul in some way. Why tell Timothy all of this? Uh, It may not feel like the most encouraging thing to read. Isn't it much better to hear a bit more about the crown? Uh, What's the lesson of these bad folks? In part, I think, is that Timothy needs to know who his friends are. Look at verse 15. Beware of him yourself. Is there also a little warning shot across Timothy's bow? Demas started really well. So did Alexander. But look where they are now. Timothy, you continue in the right path you're on. Uh, the good guys are people and girls are people like Luke and Mark in verse 11. Uh, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus, verse 19. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesophorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus, do your best to come before winter. Eubola sends you greetings, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. Um, Someone did a PhD on the different ministry associates that Paul worked with as an apostle. Uh, You add them all up, there's more than 100 of them. And uh, some of them he worked with for quite a long period of time, and some of them it was just for a, a little season. But it seems that all the while his goal with the people that he gathered around him and then deployed elsewhere was to break new ground for the gospel and then to strengthen the churches that he'd established. And the picture I've got of Paul here is a a bit like a general. And uh, his troops have been out fighting for a, a little while and then he gathers them all back together, makes sure they're all okay again. And then he is wanting to deploy them afresh in the most strategic way possible so that the gospel can continue to advance when he's in a coffin. And that is the lesson of the good guys. That gospel partnership, people working together for the same end really matters. And gospel ambition never retires. Uh, There's a video on YouTube of sports men and women who made the mistake of celebrating too soon in a race and it's a tragic to watch because you see them in cyclists or runners or, or whatever else and they're just about to win but they start slowing down and in some cases waving at the crowd to the crowds and showboating and then someone overtakes them and claims the gold and if you're unkind as clearly some of you are you laugh at those poor people. But the reason that you you laugh at them is the the first thing you're ever told to do in a race is not to slow down before the finish. Pick a spot two meters after the finish line and don't slow down until you've got there. That's Paul here, isn't it? There's no hint of him slowing down or retiring. Right up to the very end of life, he's all about bold gospel partnership and ambition. Timothy, 
finish your race. Let me close there by returning to the solemn charge of verse 2. It's the climax of the whole letter. Timothy, even in the face of suffering, guard the gospel. Finish your race. Preach the word. The application is pretty simple this morning, isn't it? I think for, for some of us, the, the charge, the challenge is not to preach the word ourselves, but to make it a priority to hear the word being preached. I take it that if Paul's priority for the Christian leader is to preach the word, then his priority for the Christian disciple is that we listen with faith to the word being preached. Hear the word. Make it a priority to hear the word in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who's to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom I charge you hear the word what that will mean for each one of us will, will differ slightly I guess but without wanting to ruffle feathers can I say I, I personally would find it very hard to do that if I were only in church once or twice a month. I'd find it very hard to do that if I were half asleep when I'm here, which I am sometimes. I'd find it even when I'm here as well as when I'm there. It's hard to do that if I spend little or no time thinking about and praying about the word that God has spoken to us when I go from here. Uh, our aim here is not to be a preaching church. Our aim is to be a church who hears and obeys the preached word. That as it's preached, we receive it with faith. Maybe, therefore, I need to go to bed a bit earlier on a Saturday so that I'm slightly more with it on a Sunday. Maybe I want to make it a priority to go twice rather than once. Maybe I want to make life groups a priority in 2024. I certainly want to be reading my own Bible. But in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, I give each one of us, myself included, this charge. Hear the word being preached. And if you're visiting us from a church where you know you're not being taught from God's word week by week, or if you're listening online, and you know that's your situation, I want to ask, are you sure it's not time to leave? Hear the word. And certainly, again, if this is the priority, all of us need to pray for the ministry of God's word, and we need to support it. We need to encourage those who are doing it or being trained to do it. And we want to, by God's grace, and with the help of the Spirit as we pray, Never be the people of verse 3 who no longer endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, we accumulate for ourselves teachers to suit our own passions. Hear the word. But for some, the, the challenge goes beyond that, doesn't it? Uh, and I know that, that some here feel the weight of Paul's logic very directly. Because if you believe... And if you have the necessary gifts 
And if you have the requisite godliness, and if you have the necessary desire, then why wouldn't you give the very best energies of your life to preaching the word of life, teaching it, sharing it with men, with women, with children, as is appropriate? If you think that that might be what God has for you in your life, please talk to us. Uh, we love helping each other to work out what it will look like for all of us to make it our aim to please the Lord. For most of us, that is definitely not in full-time paid word ministry. That is not what God has for us. But for some of us, it is. And for others, it will be. And if that's what God has for you, and if you know that you're resisting that at the moment, or if you're already engaged in word ministry in one way or another, but you're finding it so painful and discouraging that you're tempted to chuck in the towel, then I charge you with God's authority and not my own in the presence of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and remembering the crown that awaits every one of us, preach the word. And verse 22, may the Lord be with your spirit, and may grace be with you all. Let's pray. Almighty God, we want to thank and praise you for your word. We want to thank and praise you for your kingdom, for the appearing of your son, for the grace that is freely available to all who trust in him. We want to thank you that your son, the Lord Jesus, abolished death and in his own resurrection brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I want to thank you for the crown, the welcome that awaits all of us who have trusted in Jesus and loved his appearing, not because of our performance, but because he died on the cross for us. We praise you for that hope. And we pray, therefore, that you would help us to be a hearing church, a doing church, and that you would help us in whatever way is appropriate for us, either to support and encourage and pray for and fund those who are doing this work or to give ourselves to it that we might preach the word in season and out of season. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. All of us.